Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. You have an idea for a book, a bestseller. You will be published and lauded, retiring to swim backstroke through an Olympic pool of $50 notes as the adoring public devours each new novel. In the world of e-books and e-publishing, such dreams are ubiquitous, the internet now enabling the dreamer, the deceived and the multi-talented a chance at personal success. Joel Noom has spent the forefront of Australia's e-publishing at Macmillan, where he helped establish Momentum, the digital imprint for one of the world's largest publishing houses. Joel has been editor, advisor, mentor and disciplinarian to some of Australia's most successful authors and recently launched Critical Mass, a new consulting and publishing house to drive the next phase of Australia's publishing future. Hello, Joel. Hi. Thank you for joining me. Now, everyone seems to have a book inside them. Should they keep it there? <laughs> uh, in some cases, yes. I think I think it's always a balancing act. Um, and what I'm trying to do with the new business is is trying trying to get to the bottom of of that question for some some people. And your career has been driven very much from an editorial point of view. You're working with Pam McMillan, mm -hmm. and that was your first entry into the industry, really. Yes. And you actually started off working with quite some substantial Australian author names, people such as John Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. I worked with John Birmingham, I think, in my first probably first six months of starting as an editorial assistant, um, probably in a pretty minor role at that point. I can't remember exactly what I was doing with him, but I was pretty soon promoted into a full editor position where in Australia that job is about kind of project managing the editorial process, reading the book, doing structural notes, um, talking to the author. You're the kind of main point of contact for the author through the editorial process. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that there is a part of that role of being disciplinarian Absolutely. which is actually saying to these writers and especially established writers, this isn't working or this is going nowhere. And, and from my memory, isn't that what's part of your experience with John was like? That's how you sort of established yourself within the business? I think so. <laughs> John, John is a journalist, probably first and foremost, and he therefore needs deadlines and he needs, I think needs a bit of, a bit of pushing. He's a, he's a great author, but quite often. I mean, his big thing was he'd love to deliver everything but the last three chapters <laughs> of his novel. And then you'd go, but I don't know how to give you notes on this until you actually finish the book. You must end this story. <laughs> but he, he would go, I don't know how to finish it, or I'm not exactly sure, or you'll have it in two weeks. But I mean, all of that's pretty normal for authors, I would say. But um, John was the one I was working with quite closely throughout that period. So yeah. And then from that point, I'm doing, you know, the structural edit, which is the big developmental edit on a book before you start working on the words. And, you know, I was always pretty harsh with all of my authors, I would say. I think my tendency was, I think some of my authors would complain that I was too, too bloodthirsty. <laughs> One of the things that I was always gunning for was, you haven't killed enough characters off. <laughs> So John in particular, I had him kill. Uh, I didn't force him, obviously. It, it, it's, everything is always framed as a suggestion, and it always is. But I recommended to John that he kill off one of his characters' entire families at the beginning of one of his books, which I'm not sure he ever recovered from. <laughs> I, I suppose the only thing to say is it's safe to say you weren't working with romantic dramas at the time. <laughs> That's right, yes. That was later in my career. 
<laughs> the advent of ebooks within Australia uh, that it really occurred around 2011, and this was a period of significant change within the Australian um, publishing landscape. We had stores closing down around Australia. You know, there was this fear that the, the the publishing was about to take a massive hit, and yet we were seeing the introduction of ebooks over in the US, uh, the introduction of the Kindle, and much of this you wrote about during your scholarship period when you travelled to the UK at that time. What, what was that period like for you? Uh, I mean, it was a really exciting time for me. It was a very depressing time to be in publishing for, I suspect, most other people. I was I was really excited because I was I had these massive opportunities open up to me at that time. Um, but it was a very scary time for Australian publishers because, you know, Red Group, which owned Angus and Robertson and Borders, went um, into bankruptcy, I think, and... Yeah, a whole bunch of stores closed across the country. And I mean, the book trade has recovered from that to a certain extent, but not by replacing that shelf space. And so it's had kind of long and permanent effects on Australian publishing, uh, mostly around the idea of the mid-list, which is a lot harder to get authors in that middle band of um, not debut and not blockbusters, but just, you know, ticking along, successful, happy, and, and is, is, that money. is that because an audience, when there's there's heat behind a new author and they're in a much easier sell, and there's also there's heat, obviously, with the next in a series, say for someone like, you know, James Patterson or a J.K. Yeah. Rowling, whereas that middle sec section, if they're just pumping them out, but they're not bestsellers, yeah. they're not getting the heat, but they're on the shelves. Exactly. And there used to be, you know, there still is, there's a perception that if you just have the books on the shelves in a bookstore, it will sell something. And when there were, was just simply more shelves, we sold more books. And, you know, Borders in particular had great big stores with a lot of shelf space and you could stock a lot more authors. And that was part of their remit. They wanted to, to publish a diverse list, not just have a lot of stock. Um, but that hasn't really been replaced. I mean, we have a very healthy ecosystem of in, independent booksellers in Australia, much healthier than the US and the UK, which is great and unique to Australia, I would say. But um, it's still it's still very hard to, to launch, uh, the well, to, to continue a career as a mid-list author if you're not growing. What was the view on e-books? Because, I mean, it's changed so dramatically within a period of five years. As we mm. see, you know, originally I'd suggest, you know, e-books were seen as this should be a revenue stream for established authors to then now we look at them more as they're a great opportunity for people to just launch into publishing without a publisher as yeah. such. I mean, it, it kind of, it all started probably in 2007 with the, when the Kindle was launched, I would say before that point, any kind of pu digital publishing eBooks were very, very marginal. And probably for the first couple of years, they were pretty marginal anyway, but Amazon launched the Kindle in 2007 and they were clearly putting their weight behind it. And even at that point, Amazon was a pretty huge retailer for booksellers in the US. So they had to take it seriously. And that started to build a market for eBooks when publishers started to release their books. And there were a whole lot of steps to get to the point in 2010, which, which is, I think, when iBooks launched, which is Apple's response to the Kindle, uh, the Kindle store. Um, and, but from the very beginning, Amazon had in mind the uh, self-published kind of market. They always um, had plans to have it 
available for authors directly to access. Because I, I think Amazon's always had a pretty competitive attitude towards pu- traditional publishers. So they were always looking at ways of trying to cut them out of the process. And was that an exciting time or a scary time for publishing? I think publishers were simultaneously terrified and also scornful. Like, you can't possibly take over what we do. What we do is amazing. But at the same time, Amazon is massive and they will crush us. (laughs) (laughs) And they haven't really quite recovered from that, you know, dichotomy. I think they're still there, really. I think... um, uh, in recent years, there's been a lot less terror about uh, print publishing disappearing because the print market is growing um, and ebooks have plateaued in for traditional publishers. But I, I don't think that terror has completely dissipated because Amazon is bigger than ever and more influential than ever. And, you know, they've shown their ability to take massive publishers to court and, you know, have have their prices pulled apart and have the companies disentangled. I think it can be quite, I th- you know, they're very litigious and they're scary. They're a huge company and they don't rely on books really to make that happen. Well, that's the thing. They launched under the, yeah. the book title as such of being, you know, the global library or, mm. or a global bookseller. The world's biggest bookseller. Yeah. And then, of course, now they're selling everything. Yeah. 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 And books for them are a, a way of getting people to go to the store. Yeah, um, and buy their hedge trimmer. Exactly. More like Big W than like Dimmicks. What was that like when you started to see the move towards ebooks on a mass scale? And, I mean, obviously that's where you moved into with your time at Pam McMillan to set up momentum. It, it allow, did it allow you to suddenly engage with a whole new audience of uh, or selection of potential authors, more so than before from the publishing houses? I think so. I think the reason we set up Momentum in the first place was for a few reasons, but one of them for sure was about this perception of losing the mid-list and worried about the the having a deep bench for those blockbusters. Mm-hmm. You know, Macmillan publishes Matthew Riley and Di Morrissey, two of the biggest selling authors in the country, and they were worried that, you know, the next, you know, they had some authors coming up behind them, but behind them, they were worried about being able to develop authors over time, fiction mostly, I would say, and finding the talent and building it up to a point where they sell, you know, in blockbuster numbers. Um, I think they were hoping that momentum would be able to fill that gap. What we discovered as time went on, of course, is that digital publishing and ebook sales, it's a different market to print. And so different types of books work. Those books sometimes translate into print sales, but don't always. And why is that? I think people read ebooks for a different reason than they read print books, or rather, they buy ebooks for a different reason than they buy print books. Yes. People, there's a huge percentage of print book sales that are bought as gifts or um, as, you know, something that is a token of a brand. You know, people will buy a Pete Evans cookbook, not necessarily because they really want to cook all those recipes, but because they love Pete Evans and, you know, they want to get healthy and it indicates something else to them, that brand. Whereas in digital, people only buy books, uh, what they call in print a self-purchase, which I find a hilarious (laughs) concept. In in digital, that's almost every purchase. 
So people are only buying because they want to be entertained. Because they genuinely want to read or yeah. at least they, they want to trial. Yeah. And I suppose there's so many more options for them within that space when they're things like 99 cents compared to 1999. Exactly. And so they're willing to take a, a more regular risk on yeah. those things, which is, you know, and it's the immediacy. We have moved to a culture where if it's not on my phone, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's why it preferences kind of genre fiction, which is what we discovered that those books work the best. And, and when the, you say genre, is that uh, sci-fi? That's It's romance, science fiction, thrillers, you know, any book that, that fits into an umbrella genre term, I guess. But the biggest ones are romance and thrillers and sci-fi fantasy to a lesser extent. Um, and we ended up moving towards a model where we were mostly publishing those types of books. Um, there are lots of reasons for why they work, but... Some of them, I mean, the biggest reason is probably that the communities for those genres are online, they're international, and the, the stories aren't dependent on the locality. So you can sell books from Australia to anyone in the world if it's a romance book. And was that previously a difficult sell? So, for example, I mean, we're seeing a breakaway these days with people like Leon Moriarty, mm. um, who's selling very Australian stories to the rest of the world. Yep. Um, but was that previously a hindrance to be setting a book within Australia? It still is a hindrance, I would oh, right. say, even in ebooks. Uh, I think that it's changed for ebooks mostly because the structural reasons for why those books don't get up overseas have changed. You know, ebooks, there are no blocks, physical. Um, companies or store stock, you know, you don't have to stock stores or get distribution for, for print um, books when you're just selling in digital. So there's nothing physically stopping someone from getting the book or there's no companies in your way stopping you from being able to get the book to a reader. Um, Leanne is a, obviously, those types of authors are kind of, I would say, you know, unicorns. They don't, yes. they, they don't necessarily, necessarily follow the rules. <laughs> So it's really hard to draw conclusions from really big authors like that. But I think in general, it's still very hard if you've got super Australian content to sell that to a US or UK market. Um, but if you're writing in Australia and you're writing something international with an international focus, the structural reasons for why you can't get that overseas are now not there or it's certainly massively dissipated. So as you established momentum and you started to source these authors, what was it that was different in the selection process for you between someone who you would say, okay, there's an opportunity here and a market opportunity specifically within the ebook publishing area, as opposed to getting a hard copy, sticking you on a shelf and fighting to right. get attention. I think, uh, I mean, I'd like to say that we had this great plan that was executed perfectly from the beginning and that, that played out, but it isn't how it went. Basically we tried lots of things uh, early on, we published broadly across different genres. We published nonfiction. We published all sorts of things. And what we found was that genre fiction was working. And what we found was that books in series worked better than books that weren't. So what we started to do was focus in on the author as, as the platform. So then we were looking at authors who either we felt had the capacity to build a platform for, the, for their work. And by platform, I mean a combination of, you know, social media, um, readers via newsletters and readers that they could reach and yeah. tell about their new book. Because there seems to be a lot, a lot more connectivity between the mm. author and their audience absolutely. in that ebook environment than there is for the, the traditionally published. Yeah, absolutely. So we were trying to, to build those authors um, 
over time. And that's, so if we were bringing on a new author, it wasn't for just one book. It was for, I think we can build this author over time into something. Well, that's the thing I'm most interested in, I suppose, when you look at the ebook series and those who have been particularly successful. And I know you've worked with Nathan Frugio, is it? Nathan Frugio, I have worked. He was the first author I published, uh, first debut author I published under Momentum. And Nathan has indeed, as you've said, a series of books. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, and so when things are sold also online, there's that opportunity to buy them collected. Yep, absolutely. And, and you know, our first author that we published serially, uh, was Adina West. She writes kind of paranormal um, urban fantasies. Um, and we, I took a book that she submitted as a novel and asked her to trust me to split it up into five pieces and, and sell it serially. And that's because I wanted to try that as a, as a method of publication. And it worked amazingly well, that book. You know, at, at certain points across her publishing career, she's had, you know, four different titles that were all part of the same book or part of the previous book, all charting in the top 10 on iBooks at the same time. And that's that's been fantastic to see because that kind of visibility is really hard to get in eBooks. Which leads to the question of what is it that you see in authors that allows you to go, okay, you can write and you could possibly sell? It's very hard. I, I would love to say there was one thing or a couple of things that, that guaranteed it, but, you know, I think the starting point has to be that they are able to tell a story. And by that, I don't mean write sentences. You know, they need <laughs> to be able to compose the concept of a story, which I think is rarer than it seems or perhaps rarer than it sounds. A well, lot of well, people think... who are writing books and writing novels aren't writing stories because they don't know what story they're telling. Um, and that was always, you know, particularly when I would get authors who would pitch, you know, uh, oh, my book doesn't fit easily into any genre. It's all genres at once. And I, I would immediately just think, you don't know what story you're telling. That's yes. your problem. It's not that it's actually all genres at once. It's because you can't decide between which story you're telling. Because you can have a vampire story set in 1932, you know, with a war about to break exactly. open and it's a love story. Exactly. You can have all that. Yes. But there's still, there's still a main thrust of with the Russian story. circus. And is it, is it a war story? Is yeah. it about vampires? Is it, well, what is it actually about? Because you can have all those elements into a book, but there's still a, a through line. And sometimes authors just don't know what that through line is. And sometimes they, they can't write a story. Um, so that's the first thing. And it's probably that's still always going to be the most important thing. But beyond that, for momentum, when I was looking at authors, and it's the same thing I'm looking for now when I talk to authors about whether or not digital's for them. And that's kind of being able to write prolifically. I think you need to publish fairly frequently in digital if you want to keep your audience around. And why is that? Is it, I know the critical mass part of um, the, the advice you've been giving has been you've got to be able to pump out one to two a year. Yeah, I would say that's a minimum. Um, I, think, I think just readers are voracious. And once you catch a reader, what you want is to be able to keep them reading you. And, and if, that's, that's because the pattern is broken from those years ago when you'd say, okay, I'm going to buy this year's novel from, say, Val McDermott, mm -hmm. um, the crime writer, and then I know that probably next year around Christmas she'll have another one. Exactly. And then next year that's I'll That's not a problem. One. That's still a way to do it, and I think if you're already established, that's fine. But when you're starting out in e-books, basically a lot of your output gets ignored until there's something of substance, either a whole series or, you know, when readers discover a new author, they want to read everything that they can of theirs. Yeah. So once you cap capture a reader, 
if they've got nothing to go on to next, then they're lost. Yeah. You've got no way of recapturing them. Whereas in the years of print print ascendancy, and it's still the case, there's only so many books that fit on the shelves and those authors are there every year. And, you know, if a reader goes into the bookstore, they see the, the same authors again and again. And, and so they and, pick them up. And publishing houses are making their money on the, the back catalogue in many ways on these people, on the name publishers. Exactly. In ebooks, name authors, they do. I should say. That's the amazing thing about ebooks is that for traditional publishers, they're an amazing way to sell these extended backlists for these massive commercial authors who've been selling for years. Um, you know, Lee Child is possibly one of the most successful ebook authors because he has this huge backlist, all of which are really carefully branded, um, all with the same character, all with the same, you get the same experience from reading one of his books every time. Um, and that that's quite a compelling um, digital prospect, I would say. We're now seeing within the traditional publishing, people like James Patterson, who, you know, has done extraordinarily well, probably one of the most successful authors in the globe at the moment. Definitely the, um, the most. The most, yeah. Yes. And, and certainly, you know, he's approached it like he did advertising and he comes from an advertising background and marketing and, you know, he's co-authoring, shall we mm -hmm. say, in inverted commas. He's franchising. He's franchising, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's even now moved down to these short snapshot pieces, which yep. are, you know, uh, novellas, which are now filling up um, separate stands within, uh, within a bookshop. Yep. How does a new author compete with that? Well, a new author doesn't compete with James Patterson. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he's basically the size of a publisher in some case. In, in I, I would say he's definitely the size of a small to medium-sized publisher on his own in terms of his both his output and his income. But and even his approach, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, and absolutely his approach. Uh, I'm I'm in awe of him. I think it's an amazing. I mean, I, I mean, balls, massive balls <laughs> to do that. I think it's really impressive that he's pulled it off and managed to convince people that it's still all him. Yes. When it's clearly not all him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't think you, you're trying, you don't compete with that. What you're competing with, and it's what kind of what I was talking about with the unicorns. You don't compare yourself to those authors because if you do, you'll, you'll always be depressed and disappointed. You've got to compare yourself with a, with a, a comparable author and that's an author who's been writing and publishing for the same length of time as you the types of books that are working in the same type of genre you compare yourself to them and then you try and pitch yourself to the same types of audiences and you have the same kind of expectations and if you are lucky enough to become a unicorn then that's great but if that's what you're aiming for then i think you're doomed to failure I now have this vision of starting a marketing campaign for every new ebook writer, which is just, I want to be a unicorn. <laughs> I think that uh, I, we all want to be unicorns. <laughs> but unfortunately, they are very rare. Very rare. <laughs> so, Joel, what, what allowed you to make the move into you know, consulting? Because you've moved into a space now where you are working both with publishers and individual authors. And has that changed your view on the industry? Because the industry has changed with you. I think it has, yes. I, I mean, the the way I got into it was with momentum's um, shrinking. I, I'll put it that way. It's folded back into the main the main um, body of Macmillan and become something much smaller and um, less specific and active. Um, and as a result, I moved on and I had the opportunity to start a business. And what I was thinking when I set it up was, when we set up 
with momentum, it was to somewhat compete with self-published authors, I would say. Um, we were pricing books at the same type of price that self-published authors were doing, but trying to publish at a high quality. And that worked to a certain extent. We certainly were making money, but there were limitations in the in what you are able to do with a traditional publisher in terms of you know flexibility with timing. Um, you, you are reliant on other people's systems and you just can't do the things that you can do as a self-published author. But uh, And on top of that, traditional publishing's list of ebooks is the sales are plateauing uh, or in some cases actually dropping and anecdotally from retail ebook retailers that i've spoken to and self-published authors that's just not the case in the self-published space that's still growing quite healthily so i wanted to kind of see if i could move into that space a bit more and you know as as i've said if you can't beat them join them i find a way of um using the skills I've had to help self-published authors. And the, the way I did that was by identifying a gap in that market. I think there are lots of people out there trying to give services to self-published authors, but there's no one out there with an um, umbrella bird's eye view trying to give good strategy advice to authors. I think that's what's missing from the self-published experience. If you get published by a traditional publisher or if you get an agent, you will get kind of top-down advice on where you should be heading whether that's into self-publishing you know or not uh, and these days it's not uncommon for authors with agents to be mixing up their self-publishing and their traditional publishing which i think is great but if you can't get an agent you don't have access to that advice so i wanted to see if i could fill that gap and give advice to authors on that level and then also if they are interested in self-publishing or traditionally publishing, I can I can help them along the road either way. Is it a difficult road for people to follow? Yeah, I think so. I think there are just so many options nowadays that it's really hard to know which one's the right one for you. If you've written something and you're just not sure what it is, is it a book? Maybe it's not a book at all. Maybe it's a book that has some self-publishing potential. Maybe it's a book that has traditional publishing potential. Um, until you talk to someone who has a little bit of um, experience in that, you, you just don't know. We touched before on the nature of the connectivity between ebook authors or e-authors. I'm not sure if there's a new term. Authors uh, in indie general. authors is indie what they authors. like to be called. Fabulous, <laughs> like an indie band who yeah. doesn't want to go mainstream, but That's they want right. all the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't want to sell out. <laughs> um, the connectivity is absolutely critical. That's what we talked about. So, is there a requirement now for these independent authors to do so much more of their own marketing? Say beyond what would be a traditional publishing deal, which is you hand over your manuscript, the publishing house gets it and says we'll allocate this amount of advertising money. You just sit back and then you turn up at the various book signings where we send you yeah i mean, to be honest i think this is shifting across the entire publishing industry it's not just indie authors that are doing more it's it's traditionally published authors that are expected to do to do more part of that is social media which it's very inauthentic to have a publisher pretending to be an author on twitter or facebook and generally it doesn't work and only the very biggest authors have that type of support anyway because it's very resource intensive um so all authors are being expected to do more. Uh, in terms of traditional book marketing, there's not actually that much to it. I mean, it's, it's partially just about the spend and there's never a very big spend. And most of the marketing that I hear of from traditional publishers for print books is, is kind of dump bins and light walls in the airport. You know, it's not, 
and I've heard a few marketing managers describe themselves as dump in and light wall managers. <laughs> and I think that's not totally inaccurate. Obviously, there's a, there's an art to doing that well, but, um, it's not complex and it's not innovative. Um, digital marketing is different. There's a lot of new options. A lot of that stuff doesn't work at all. And, um, a lot of it is really specific to the type of book and the type of author and what you're trying, planning to do in the long term. Um, so I think, Educating yourself about that stuff is really important, regardless of how you're publishing. And um, the authors who do well with it will do well in self-publishing, as and they'll do well in traditional publishing if they get picked up for traditional publishing. How important is it for people to to sort of build a profile and get recognition beyond the, the beyond the norm? Let's just say, yeah. It's look, it's essential. I think you need to get out there. There's always a balancing act though between wasting your time chasing something that's tiny that isn't going to help you and spending enough time to get something big and do that well. So for say, for example, a mailing list for a lot of authors would be would be absolutely critical these days. Yeah. Because that you've got that target audience. And if you can get 2,000 people on that, well, that's 2,000 people who are already locked in to buy your next book. Exactly. And you own it as yes. well. That's part of the problem with social media is, as Facebook has demonstrated, if you own what you think you've owned your audience, your followers on, on a platform like that, can be taken away from you essentially by the platform um, and then be asked to pay to reach them. That if, the benefit of an e- email newsletter is that you you own that list and you have access to those people on it and you can strip people out of that list or add people on and you can they can be really tailored to be the people who actually lo- love your books and every book that comes out you have this immediate ability to reach them and that's that's essential with particularly if you're writing in a series. So what excites you about the publishing industry? I mean, you've been in long enough to be desperately jaded by now <laughs> and having seen you know, the rise and fall of bookshops and that cyclical nature of, of the authors, some will burn hot and brightly and then disappear and we'll never see them again. And that's all usually because of sales. Um, the first might hit, the hmm. second won't, and they disappear. And they, you know, we know that they've swiped right, and they're joining the cliche tortured artists <laughs> in the bar, crying over their beer. Yep. So, so what about you? What, does it still? Are you still enthusiastic about the industry at this stage and where it's going? Yeah, I think that's why I started Critical Mass is because it was the area that still excited me, and I think um, the combination of indie authors who aren't just digital, but are primarily digital, um, and digital for traditional publishers the area those are the areas that have the most to give i would say you know in in indie authors and indie publishing is still growing massively and digital for traditional publishers is still an area that i think uh, and i'm not just talking about ebooks here i'm talking about digitizing their workflows and making things more efficient and that's the part that that i find really exciting in working with publishers and then for authors, you know, because it's still growing and generally speaking, they're also publishing the types of books that I like reading. That is really exciting for me. Well, that's my next question, which is what do you read? Because I've talked to quite a few authors and, of course, it's I keep saying this, which is you obviously to write a lot, you have to read a lot. Mm. Uh, to be able to edit a lot and actually make a discerning view on a potential new author, let alone an established author, and to have the gall to say to John Birmingham, this isn't working... <laughs> What do you read? I mean, I read very broadly. Um, until I started, until I left Momentum, I was basically exclusively reading 
manuscripts, either by authors I had already decided to publish or by authors I was still on the fence about. Um, and that was a massive transition to move away from reading just exclusively for work. And now being able to read for pleasure is this amazingly beautiful thing that I thought I would never get back. <laughs> um, I'm still doing a lot of reading with cl for clients, uh, structural edits and things like that, but I do get to read for pleasure now. And I've been kind of a bit selfish about that. So I used to read much more broadly, I guess, when I was publishing because there were um, areas of publishing genres that I hadn't read before Momentum or didn't read deeply before Momentum like romance that I loved once I started reading. Uh, but I've fallen back on, you know, the stuff I used to read when I before Momentum, which is largely speculative fiction, I would say. So science fiction, fantasy and um, the weird. Um, so there's a whole, a whole horde of authors I missed out on by essentially spending five years only reading manuscripts. So I got to read, I've, got, I've gotten to catch up on this long list of books that I had I've been told by multiple people that this is absolutely brilliant. So I suspect when I've made my way through that list, I'll be, you know, shocking, shocked to, to discover that there are no more of those authors or everything isn't as great as I'm being, because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting like the cream, the up, absolute cream of five years worth of books in a very specific genre. But I'm going to run out of those pretty so soon. So you're going to get to that point where you go, the last five years has been fantastic. Yeah, there's nothing and but great books no, out no. there. <laughs> it was a golden era. Yeah. <laughs> this is possibly an inaccurate representation, but it's, it's, it's great. Um, when you look at um, a manuscript, there must be a part of you before you actually pick it up that just says, please be good. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And what is it like to get, when do you, at what page do you get to before you go, I can't keep going? <laughs> well, at the moment, now that I'm being paid to read manuscripts directly, I, I don't get to that point. <laughs> I keep going because I'm being paid to, to read it. But um, certainly when my job was to filter those books out and uh, I made a decision pretty quickly and it was, partially about the writing um so it's not really just about reading and what page i stop reading yeah. it's also about looking at their pitch what story are they telling um what do, is it coherent does it fit into a genre if it does fit into a genre is it a genre i'm looking to publish um you know in at any given time i was looking for different types of things to fill holes in the list you know in in you know I was publishing, by the time Momentum stopped, we were publishing a year ahead, you know. So I was looking for books in nine months' time, 12 months' time. And, you know, we might already have four romance titles for a particular month and we needed another few books, but we weren't going to have more romance books. So that was a lot of my decision-making at that point. Um, early on, it was a lot more free-flowing where I would just go, oh, I can publish anything. And, <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was much more open to new things, I guess. But then by the end, I was like, I am looking for probably science fiction, fantasy, or I'm looking for a really good thriller um, that ideally it would be set in America. It would be, you know, like I, so I was looking for quite specific things, but I never put calls out to ask for specific things because that's when you start to get really bad books. Right. <laughs> is that, is that and like I would say, I've, the first thing I say to authors is when they say what genre sells the best is don't write for the market. You can't write for a market. You need to write f with an audience in mind. You know, you need to think who is your audience and would they enjoy this? Yes. But 
don't write because a particular book is taking off because inevitably it won't be taking off by the time you finish it or something else will go wrong or, you know, whatever. You or, need, you, you or need to write what you love. And, yeah, that was my, going to be my, my question was, can you tell when someone is writing to the niche as opposed to writing for love? I think you probably can to a certain extent, um, particularly if you've got a talented author. If the, if the author can write well, I think then the bumps are taken out and you can, you can see whether there's passion behind it. If the author can't write very well or they're really, really rough on the page or on the line, sometimes you just it's a struggle to just get through it in the first place, let alone tell whether or not they're, they might be passionate, but <laughs> it's hard to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember hearing once from a publisher that she said, you know, if I read another book that opens with rain, it's, <laughs> yes. it's going out the window. <laughs> it's very common for um, particularly first-time novelists to start with weather, a description of the weather <laughs> or a description of the light coming through the trees um, or something like that. I, I am always advising that people cut out almost their entire first page. <laughs> um, because it's oftentimes that they have like four or five paragraphs describing the weather and you just go, no one wants to read that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the future for critical mass? Um, I, it's very exciting. I think I, I'm really excited by it at the moment, partially because it's just great fun to have the level of flexibility I have to do whatever I want. You know, I can take the projects on I want. I'm not under the same pressure as I was running Momentum. Um, what I want is to establish a stable of clients, uh, authors, clients who, you know, I really believe in as well as, um, you know, I'm not, where, I'm, I'm, I don't have that level. I don't, I don't say, no, I'm not going to work with you because I don't believe in you uh, like I did at Momentum because I didn't have a choice. But I would prefer to be working with authors I believe in. And I've been lucky enough so far to get quite a lot of clients coming in the door that I just think are fantastic. So I hope that continues. That's what I want. And is the future of authorship and writing in Australia strong? Absolutely. I think it's stronger than ever. There's a lot of doom and gloom about it because I think, um, you know, things are more atomized than they've ever been, I guess. But there are also... The flip side of that is that there are more options than ever before. And if you're willing to be, if you're willing to work hard and uh, look into things, do your research, try really hard, um, then there are more options than ever before. You can publish in a really diverse way and um, you'll eventually get what you want. So long as what you want isn't a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things I always say to clients is, look, what are your publishing goals? If your publishing goal is to make a lot of money, maybe you know, maybe you're not talking to the right person. Because I, I think if that's the main thing driving you, then you, you should just find a different career. Yeah. Uh, because it's just not, it's not the most lucrative career to get into either on any side of the equation, um, editing or pub or or authoring, but. Um, yeah, because other than it, that. Because think, at the end of the day, those J.K. Rowlings and her castles are very much the unicorns. Exactly. <laughs> uh, they're wonderful unicorns that help buoy up everyone else, but <laughs> they're, they're not the, you know, they're not the, the way to, to make a living. Joel, thank you very much for your time today and all the very, very best with Critical Mass. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you can find Joel at Critical Mass on the web, on Facebook and via Twitter. 
This has been Conversations with Writers. I'm James Rickards, and please connect with us via Twitter at ConversationsWW or find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.